This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Shalom. Vladimir Putin is threatening to start a nuclear war. This is something we have to talk about. We actually have two stories to start our program today about the dangers of a nuclear World War III increasing. The first about Russia, the second about Iran. But Russia has been sending out a number of signals about this. Some say it is bluster and gamesmanship. What are the chances of nuclear weapons being deployed on modern cities? To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Russian President Vladimir Putin just issued this horrific warning. This was on Wednesday, and he he said any Western nation that helps Ukraine defend itself against him could be facing, as you said, Russian nuclear weapons. His, uh, His quote was, if someone intends to interfere from the outside, they must know that constitutes an unacceptable strategic threat to Russia. They must know that our response to counterstrikes will be lightning fast. And then he said that Russia has, quote, all the tools for this that no one else can boast of having. So that's a clear reference there to Russia's various super weapons. Those include nuclear-capable hypersonic missiles that even America's sharpest defense systems cannot stop. It also includes that Satan II missile that uh, Mr. Palmer spoke about on the program last week. That's a weapon that carries 10 to 15 nuclear warheads that are independently targetable. So 10 to 15 cities could be taken out with a single one, just, you know, breathtaking firepower. And Putin said, quote, we will use them if needed. And I want everyone to know that. And this came just a couple of days after Russia's foreign minister spoke, uh, I think, even more bluntly about all of this. He said that the risks of nuclear war are now very significant and very serious. So everyone, you know, as you said, everyone hopes that this is just bluster, or maybe it's just an effort to try to get the West to stop sending military aid to Ukraine. But more analysts are starting to fear that because Russia is not doing as well as expected in Ukraine, that a kind of desperation is developing that could actually prompt Putin to dramatically escalate. The, uh, The geopolitical analyst Peter Zion spoke about this a few days ago. He said, If there's one thing that was coloring American decision-making on all things Russia, it was that they were maybe not a peer force, but a near-peer force. All of a sudden, that logic's gone out the window. We know now that if American forces and Russian forces meet on a field of battle, the Russian forces will be obliterated. And if that happens, the only choice the Russians have is between a humiliating strategic withdrawal or up the ante with nuclear weapons. Mm And so, and then he continued, and so from the American point of view, this has gotten a lot scarier than we ever thought it would be. The degree of desperation that might exist in Russia's strategic thinking is something that we really hadn't taken into account earlier. Hmm. So, you know, this kind of threat from Putin to start using the Satan II and other unstoppable weapons, it's not coming from a position of strength. Those threats are a sign of his panic and fear. It's a sign of weakness and desperation, but when you're talking about someone like Putin and, and really the whole Russian system, then desperation is 
almost the most dangerous thing that they could be feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have laughed these these threats from Putin off. You know, he can't even take Ukraine. What's he going to do against the West and the U.S.? But it's precisely because he has stumbled with conventional forces in Ukraine that I think these threats should not be dismissed. Yeah, what do you make of uh, Putin's statement that he's essentially saying if the military aid into Ukraine continues, then you're going to suffer the consequences uh, and put, putting the nuclear uh, dimension into that threat at the same time that you have uh, the United States is upping its ante and it's saying that they're going to send uh, the Biden administration says it wants to send some thirty three billion dollars worth of aid into Ukraine, in addition to the billions that it's already sent, it doesn't seem like there's a too much. Uh, I don't know. There's more more will in the West than you might have expected, and it does seem like uh, you could see this really escalating quickly. Yeah, I think more and more powers in the West, led by the United States, are realizing that unless Russia is defeated in Ukraine, then they'll be facing Russia in you know further west in Europe. And so if you can defeat him with 33 billion or 40 billion or however much we've we've given them, then uh, that's that's probably far more desirable than facing Russia head on with NATO forces outside of Ukraine. So I guess I'm just wondering what what does what does Putin do if he he either makes good on that threat uh, or, you know, the humiliation is even greater than it was by what has happened in Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, and I, I have no idea what he'll do, but uh, it's terrifying to see it coming to this. So uh, looking at this from a standpoint of Bible prophecy, obviously we, uh, we, first of all, there is a lot in the Bible warning about the reality of nuclear warfare. Uh, maybe you could, you could talk about that, and then we could talk about uh, just what we can expect from Russia based on what the prophecy tells us. Yeah, sure. Well, if you if you look at Bible prophecy, there are several places that prophesy of another world war that will soon erupt. And uh, the scriptures actually specify that this third world war will be so cataclysmic, it'll have the potential to erase all human life from the planet. That's uh, especially clear in Matthew 24, 21 through 22. So from that specific detail, we know that this is talking about nuclear war and, and the nuclear winter that would follow it. Um, and so when you consider those passages, I think you see that Putin's threats to use his nuclear weapons should really not at all be dismissed. Now, we do know from Bible prophecy that Russia will not be the nation that sparks that, that global war, but Russia will play a leading role in it. So, you know, it's, it's tremendously important, I think, to understand all of those passages. And uh, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has written a booklet about all of them. It's called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. And he explains everything that the Bible tells us about this approaching war, but he also emphasizes the hope that's linked into all of that. There is a lot of hope and a lot of good news in there. And uh, that booklet, I think, could help any listener who who might be feeling overwhelmed and heavy-hearted about these events that are happening in the world right now. I think that booklet could help them a lot to understand all of this in the big picture and just to understand all of the hope that is tied into it. Just looking at the the mindset of Russians, we've talked about just the uh, the fact that Putin obviously has uh, a lot of people in his country behind him. He has there is definitely a strong segment of Russians who are against what he's doing. Uh, but 
he does have a lot of support and as he's threatening nuclear war it does seem like there is a segment of russians that are willing to accept that if that's a consequence of the tact that uh, vladimir putin is taking there was actually a uh, a quote from uh, the editor of russia today um who she said either we lose in ukraine or the third world war starts and she said i think world war three is more realistic knowing us knowing our leader the most incredible outcome that all this will end with a nuclear strike seems more probable to me than the other course of events uh and she said if that's if that is what happens it is what it is we'll go to heaven while they'll simply croak we're all going to die someday that's a pretty fatalistic view i wonder how much uh of the Russian people are taking that kind of a, uh, an approach. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you are seeing more and more of this in Russia. Uh, it's definitely not just Putin. You know, a lot of people in the West say we need regime change. I don't think that would solve much because a, a Putin clone would very mm. quickly fill the office and have policies very similar to his. And, and you do see as Russia continues to falter and stumble, um, I think more and more Russians speaking the way that editor spoke, just kind of saying we would rather blow up the entire world than to live in a world where we don't dominate Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, Nuclear Armageddon is at the door is the booklet that uh, we'll point to in the show notes. We thank you for that, Jeremiah. Another development increasing the threat of nuclear wars unfolding in Iran. The U.S. said this week the Islamic State is just weeks away from nuclear breakout. This, as the Biden administration is still trying to conclude a deal with Iran over its nuclear program. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this is really interesting. It, it seemed like uh, Anthony Blinken just sounded like us, really uh, trying to warn the world just how close Iran is to the bomb. He did say that to this Senate Foreign Relations Committee just this past week, that Iran's breakout time, well, the breakout time for Iran to produce enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon had now come down to a few weeks, a matter of weeks, he said, which is obviously inviting the question as melanie phillips writes in her column this week what are you going to do about it and i think that this is something that um mr ba mr blinken you know intends and put to the public through this through this uh meeting was that he still thinks and it's the policy of the united states government that the best way to address i'm quoting him now the best way to address the nuclear challenge posed by iran is the nuclear deal that they're working out. So in one hand, he's telling everybody we've got a, a state actor that is still designated as the number one terrorist sponsoring nation in the world by the United States that is only a few weeks away from the bomb. And the best way to do that is to go into a nuclear deal. So it's either nuclear deal or the bomb, uh, at least according to Anthony Blinken this week. So uh, Melanie Phillips' question was, uh, what are you going to do about it? She also asks, why is Blinken being so forthcoming about uh, acknowledging just how close Iran is to nuclear breakout? Why now? Well, I think you're seeing this situation develop where there's increasing pressure from the United States public. It's getting a little bit more publicity that how, how close the United States is to a nuclear deal. And it just came out this past week or two weeks ago that they were planning on um, uh, removing the terrorist designation for the IRGC, the number one terrorist sponsoring organization in Iran that sponsors uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, 
the Houthis, all these other terrorist organizations that fight against the West and fight against Israel. The United States, as part of the nuclear deal, was considering and still is considering removing them from the the terrorist list, the IRGC. And there was a lot of backlash. And so what she's saying is through the, through this through this decision to try and uh, scare the American public, make it known how close Iran is to a bomb, that the only way to prevent it is to try and get lock them into some nuclear deal. Of course, she looks at it and saying that the first nuclear deal didn't prevent Iran from moving towards a bomb. The Blinken, even Saki, the press secretary, said this week that it was all Trump's fault. That's why Iran is back close to the bomb. Well, we really just don't know that because there was no verification system in place throughout the first nuclear deal to even verify whether Iran was moving towards a nuclear bomb or not. It was all based on their statements. And so as as Melanie Phillips brings out, Iran is moving towards a bomb no matter what. And the United States has decided through Blinken, that what is the best way to go about it, at least is what they, the, 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 well, basically the, the foreign policy goal of the United States is to go into a nuclear deal, whether Iran gets a bomb or not. This is how she concludes her piece. She says this at the end, the big lie about the Obama Biden courtship of Iran is that it was intended to prevent it from getting a nuclear bomb. It wasn't. It was to conceal what the United States had decided was inevitable an Iranian nuclear weapon because it intended to do nothing to stop it. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of pressure against a nuclear deal now, and you have Blinken coming out and saying, they're going to get the bomb within a few weeks if we don't do something. So the nuclear deal is the best way to go about it. Melanie Phillips says they're going to get the bomb either way. The nuclear deal just gives them a lot of extra money. <laughs> right. Yeah, the the logic behind this is uh is pretty convoluted, uh but this is what we have come to expect from the Biden administration, which is an extension of the Obama administration which seems to be uh eager to forge some kind of a deal with Iran no matter what. And Melanie Phillips makes the point that uh it it seems to spring from not only uh do you have elements within this administration that are anti-Israel, but you also have this kind of blinkered idea that uh, anything is preferable to war, even if it means giving Iran a nuclear weapon, which is which is really quite an extraordinary uh, view of this. To think that uh, a, a nuclear-armed Iran is actually going to make war less likely. Right. That's what she, she says. She says the Blinkens, as Blinkens team has reportedly said, and this ha they reportedly, they say this all the time, is that a nuclear Iran is preferable to military confrontation. It's like they're, they're trying to stop. Yes, we don't want Iran to get the nuclear weapon. The nuclear deal allows them to get it lawfully uh, in a decade or less now. Um, but we just don't want military confrontation. Do we want a war with Iran? No war at all costs. So basically, it's kind of like this. They're, they're, this is what uh, Blinken said. Just one more quote, and I'll explain it. He says, we continue to believe that getting back into compliance with the agreement, that is the nuclear deal, would be the best way to address the nuclear challenge posed by Iran and to make sure that an Iran that is already acting with incredible aggression doesn't have a nuclear weapon. So basically, it's saying that Iran's really close to the bomb, everybody, and they look how bad they are right now. They are horrible. 
Look at all the terrorist uh, actions they're doing across the world. Look how they're sponsoring terrorism. So what do we need? We need a deal that stops them from adding a nuclear weapon to their arsenal. And to get that, to get them to stop, we're going to give them lots and lots of money. Like that is the, the <laughs> definition of, of, of nuclear blackmail that we've talked about time and time again. And so do you reward bad behavior with money to do more bad behavior and covertly go and get a nuclear weapon? Or would you think that dealing with a power like this in the Middle East, uh, there might be some different tactics that if you have, you know, no, if, if no war is your goal, then war will actually come to you, but, mm -hmm. and you'll have uh, less favorable terms. The terms will not mm -hmm. be fought on, on your side. Um, just dealing with the way that the world is, and especially in the Middle East. And the Middle East powers know that. And so they're just terrified by this type of talk uh, from, from Blinken. There's no way to understand it uh, unless you understand the point that Gerald Flurry has made repeatedly, that this is not incompetence. This is uh, treachery. This is uh, a deliberate effort on the part of this uh, Antiochus-led administration to undermine American and Israeli interests. Um, really, anytime you look at this, uh, these kinds of policies, you have, to, you have to recognize what's really going on here. Where would you send people for more information about this, Brent? People can read a chapter from Mr. Flurry's book, Great Again, The Most Dangerous Lie in History. Thank you very much for that, Brent. We will turn now to technology, information, and censorship. We'll start in America, where Elon Musk just bought Twitter, and this has almost overnight exposed some stunning realities about how the world works. Radical leftists are foaming mad over it. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this was really big news that broke on Monday. Last week, everyone was talking about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter uh, and think, saying that it probably wouldn't happen. They had like the board had this poison pill strategy where they could dilute the shares and keep them from getting more than 15%. And then all of a sudden, about just after lunch on Monday, it came out that the, the board of Twitter had accepted his offer. Uh, it'll take some time for him to go about um, purchasing the shares and actually taking over the company. Uh, he hasn't taken it over yet. But like I said, there's been, been a complete um, meltdown from like all sectors of society over this. I think George Soros's Open Markets Initiative tried to have the uh, Federal Communications Commission block the sale. Uh, and then they responded that they didn't have the authority uh, to do that. Uh, Barack Obama headed out to Stanford University to give a speech on how uh, the big tech companies need to do more to rein in misinformation. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, announced the creation of a, what pretty much amounts to a disinformation governance board uh, as part of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, headed up by a woman who, who today has been most famous for uh, trying to cover up the Hunter Biden laptop story. Yeah. Uh, and so you're seeing from government, from university, from the, uh, <laughs> from the different think tanks uh, and the media, just kind of this, um, this effort to stop this sale. Uh, but at the end of the day, Elon Musk does have $250 billion. So it, it's kind of hard to stop him when he's decided he's has something he wants to buy. Uh, it's actually interesting. They've already had some, <laughs> some corruption in Twitter uh, coming to the surface. They've, I guess they've admitted that they've been basically lying 
about the number of monetized active users mm-hmm. uh, on Twitter, which kind of gives you some indication of why Musk was able to buy it. Uh, despite having George Soros and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the Department of Homeland Security and the entire corporate media against him, uh, is the fact that it looks like the company is not in good financial health, uh, and Musk offered to buy it for several billion more than it's worth, mm-hmm. uh, and so he basically just made those shareholders a, a deal they a deal they couldn't refuse. Uh, but it does raise the questions like how much more. Um, corruption comes in i mean i think you were telling me before the show that one of the uh one of the media analysts was saying that musk didn't buy a company he bought evidence right yeah that was uh jack prosobic said said that that uh, all of the you know you've seen not only uh the twitter reveal that they had all of these uh these fake accounts on there uh, that there are far fewer users than what they had advertised, but you have this massive shift taking place where all of these uh, left-wing Twitter users are losing tens of thousands of uh, followers at the same time that conservatives are gaining tens of thousands of followers. And so there are people that are basically saying that the company is already, even though it's going to be months before Musk actually takes over, trying to cover their tracks they're trying to uh, say, and they're they're saying, well, the, the reason why this is happening is because, uh, you know, there are a lot of users who are abandoning the platform because they don't want to be on there now that Musk is going to be owning it, and a lot of conservatives that are joining it. So they're saying this is all just organic uh, changes. When in reality, what's being exposed is the fact that they've been putting their finger on the scale for quite some time. So this is being exposed and it's it's out there in the open. So that's the point that uh, Prasovic was making is is he said that uh, Elon Musk now has his hands in all of the data and he can look at it and expose exactly what's going on here. Yeah, I think Donald Trump Jr. had a similar point. Uh, his father, Donald Trump Sr., is not on Twitter anymore. They, they kicked him off and uh, we'll, we'll see whether... Uh, he decides to come back once Musk allows that. But um, uh, Donald Trump Jr., he, he pointed that he got, like, basically the day the sale was announced, he got, like, 70,000 mm-hmm. more followers. Yeah. Uh, and just pointing out the fact that, yeah, I'm sure some people heard Elon Musk was buying Twitter and decided to come back after not using it for some time and follow Donald Trump Jr. Uh, but but given a lot of the investigative research, uh, like the Heartland Institute, or Project Veritas has done in the past about uh, the shadow banning. There, there's definitely a realistic reason to think that they have been kind of shadow banning some of those accounts from people like Donald Trump Jr. trying to get it so they don't show up in your information feed so often. And now they've reversed that, so he's getting more publicity. So people follow it kind of in an idea that, like, well, some of this more this more draconian uh, banning of conservatives, maybe uh, Musk is going to privatize it and do away with that anyway. Mm-hmm. So if we do away with it before he actually takes over the company, fingers crossed, maybe uh, the American people won't find out about just how bad uh, how bad it was. Because I know there was that one shit clip, it's a few years old now, from Project Veritas with you had a couple of their like algorithm engineers basically saying that like any tweet with the word God or America in it is flagged as like a potential bot. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're, 
I mean, it, with with no other evidence, it's like basically, it's like you're you're just trying to like anything has anything to do with the Christian religion or American patriotism. Uh, Twitter's trying to downplay, uh, and that's the main reason Musk <laughs> bought this. We'll see. Maybe with all the seventy thousand followers Don Jun uh, Don Junior's got, um, I mean, maybe the company will turn around. Uh, become more profitable, and, and Elon Musk might end up making uh, making some money off this deal. But he's been pretty pretty public that like he he has enough money from Tesla and yeah. SpaceX and the Boring Company and like all the other companies he runs that the Twitter company is not for profit. This is a favor to America. You cannot help but see what's happening here in light of what we were talking about on Wednesdays show we are living in the age of exposure uh when you look at what happened with uh donald trump coming into office donald trump losing the uh 2020 presidential election presumably uh and then the everything that's happened in the age of covid and the biden administration taking over there have been uh, so many elements of our modern society where this evil and corruption has been exposed to an astonishing degree uh, in ways that we had no real hard evidence. Maybe we had, uh, we had, we were skeptical or we had doubts about this or that, or, or we had suspicions, but now it's all coming out into the open. This, we certainly see this uh, taking place now with uh, that 2020 presidential election. Who knew that Elon Musk buying Twitter would expose the degree of uh, the corruption. Again, we had our suspicions. We, we, we knew quite a lot, but this is getting down into the hard evidence and the data of just how much corruption there is in just one social media company and the meltdown that is happening on the, uh, by the leftists over this one company being purchased by a man who really is not a conservative. He's, he's, a, you know, he's a center of the road kind of a guy. He's a free markets guy. Um, the meltdown that they're having and the accusations that they're making against him, it, it really is stunning uh, just how much this reveals about the way that they, how much control, how much power and influence they have had over the world. Yeah, I mean, you go back just a month ago, and the only time you even heard the Biden administration talk about Elon Musk was to uh, mention how uh, how awesome a company Tesla was and how everyone needs right. to buy one to stop global warming. Yeah. Uh, and now all of a sudden he came out that, like, okay, well, he, he is a big believer in fighting global warming, but he's also a big believer in free speech. So they're, uh, you're getting a bit of cognitive dissidence with uh, right. these leftists. Like, well, how, how do we reconcile that? Like, we like his global warming politics, but he also wants to let people say what they want. Yeah. But uh, you say, yeah, but our editor-in-chief had, uh, Mr. Gerald Floyd wrote in his article, why I still believe uh, Donald Trump's going to return to power uh, about those prophecies in Second Kings 14 and Amos 7 about President Trump returning to power. Uh, but he made a statement in that article about like you're going to see like ma- these massive frauds uh, exposed in America. And uh, and you're already really seeing a lot of that with this Twitter uh, with this Twitter would no one could have predicted that would <laughs> this would happen and you're going to see a ton of the censorship. Uh, I already saw a couple headlines this morning about how uh, the the big companies like Twitter and Facebook and by, by doing the shadow banning and media bias is tipping elections. And so this is definitely going to help expose uh, expose some of these uh, stolen election stories as along with a bunch of the other censorship that's going uh, 
going on in America. I was quoted to someone the other day. It's like, I don't know. It's like he's he might want to regroup his finances after his $44 billion expenditure. But it would be really nice if uh, if Musk could buy Dominion voting systems as well while he's on this purchasing binge. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that would expose uh, quite a lot of corruption. What will happen when Donald Trump returns to power? We'll link to that as well as uh, an article by Andrew Miller, uh, the biggest threat to American democracy. He wrote that about a year ago about the uh, the tech giants censoring and uh, what the consequences of that are for American society and beyond. Thank you for that, Andrew. A related story now in Europe where a new law increases the power of authorities to censor online activity. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Elon Musk may be crying freedom for Twitter but the EU is very keen to make sure uh, that that doesn't happen and that they gain and keep control over what can and cannot be said online. Uh, hearing that Elon Musk was a so-called free speech absolutist, uh, Thierry Breton, uh, he's the European Union's Commissioner for Internal Markets, uh, he threatened to ban Twitter from the European Union. And just over the last week, the European, uh, the various governing bodies within Europe agreed uh, on the principles of a new law that would allow them to do just that. So on uh, April 23rd, the European Commission, the European Parliament and national governments, uh, after 16 months of negotiation, they agreed on what the new Digital Services Act will look like. And this is something that will create a new European-wide bureaucracy for policing the biggest tech firms, those that have at least 45 million users within Europe. And you know, like we've said all along, the, these tech firms have genuine problems. And it's not like we are in a wonderful situation right now um, and the EU is, is just messing it up. Uh, there, are there are genuine problems, and there are some genuine problems that the EU deals with. Uh, but the real problem here is not that you've got a government trying to come in and fix some of the problems that you've got with social media. Uh, instead, this is the European Union trying to grab power over what you can and cannot say online, uh, essentially worldwide. You know, they're grabbing the right to, if you've got users in Europe, they want to be able to regulate your content policies, your moderation moderation policies. They want to be able to force you to, to delete stuff. So Elon Musk may want to be a free speech absolutist. Uh, to I don't really like that term, makes wanting free speech sound extreme, mm. uh, but I think Musk himself used that. Uh, you know, he may want to do that. The European Union wants to be able to get in there and says, no, you can't. We have a list of stuff that you have to take down. Quite a uh, stark contrast, uh, although the uh, the way that you uh, see the leftists within the United States responding to what Elon Musk is trying to do is very much of a piece of what these European regulators are doing. Uh, and they seek to punish Elon Musk just as much as these uh, American regulators doing. What's behind all of this uh, This effort to control the flow of information and the narrative that people are able to uh, be exposed to. Yeah, so Hillary Clinton has been actively supporting what the European Union is doing, praising them, encouraging them to to publish this act. Uh, 
uh, I mean, all behind this is a spirit of control. We want to be able to control what people can and can't say online. And actually, the European Commission wanted a much tougher uh, version of this law, one where um, you had content filters. So instead of Twitter coming on and taking down posts that they don't like, the European Commission initially wanted Twitter to basically have to approve all posts um, you know, and check every single one is okay before it gets posted, which is a massive shift in terms of even more censorship. They weren't able to get their own way here. But they've been pushing for this kind of online control for a long time. What I think is most new about this new Digital Services Act is that makes it uh, happen at a European level, that there's a European bureaucracy. They're going to be hiring about 150 people who will be determining what what you uh, you can't say online that will be responsible for uh, investigating these big companies. But really, it is it is about control and it exposes the spirit of the Holy Roman Empire mm -hmm. that you, you've got this prophesied empire in Revelation 17 that is going to be autocratic, that is led by kings, that is going to have a huge degree of control over you know, very personal and private beliefs of its citizens. The Bible talks about it having a great degree of religious control um, over its citizens. So this is something that really does crack down on what you can and can't say. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry is really focused on the way that the European Union's efforts to control speech exposes the revival um, of this, of the, or the rise of the spirit of the Holy Roman Empire. He had an article, Germany is taking control of the internet where he wrote, the European Union is working to gain control of the internet. It has already made significant progress uh, in this effort. He wrote that through various pieces of legislation, the EU now has extraordinary influence in the homes of internet users and within every corporation and government on earth. He talked about the fact that a lot of the content moderation coming from Facebook, coming from Twitter right now, is already being dictated by EU law. Now, in this case, they're doing, you know, they're forcing these companies to do what they want to do in, in a great many of cases anyway uh but is it, this um, is this is kind of like uh we talk about the california effect in the united states where you have a, a big market say when it comes to something like uh school curricula and uh, any company that wants to be able to service uh, the whole nation they've got to conform to even though it's just one state within the united states they have to conform to california standards in order to uh, to be broadly, uh, to, to make sure that their market is as, as large as possible. So these European regulators, they can say, you can't use our markets unless you conform to our rules. And so even international companies uh, moderate what they're doing in order to conform to the EU. Right. In some ways, it's even worse. It would be expensive, but it's still possible for, say, the, the, the school textbook example you gave, to print one version of your textbook for California and a different one for Texas. When it comes to what the European Union is demanding for um, for Twitter, is it's all about well, what can a, a user within Europe see? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a it's an up or down, it's a green light or a red light on any given website. Right, and they've been pushing the envelope in terms of this extraterritorial nature is is, is how they refer to it of this regulation. Uh, but yeah, you're kind of forcing some of these companies to decide between either applying these rules globally or having a special EU version of Twitter that doesn't really link to the, the US version, which then completely kind of eliminates a lot of the appeal of these social networks, which is their broad reach. So it's, uh, 
you know, it, it's about a global effort of control. And so Mr. Flurry wrote, Germany's ambitions for the internet should concern everyone, even those that don't have a computer. The EU's behavior on this issue exposes the dictatorial nature of this German-dominated entity. And that, I think, is the big takeaway here, is the way that you've got this German-dominated entity that wants to uh, control what people think and say. And Mr. Flurry gets into more detail into the prophecy behind that in his article, Germany is taking control of the internet. All right. Thanks very much. We will link to that article in the show notes. We appreciate that. Richard, you're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Japan seeking to double its double its defense budget. Iran fomenting riots on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Takeaways from France's presidential election and the shrinking U.S. economy. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. A new report shows that defense spending globally is at an all-time high, and it continues to rise in response to all the turmoil taking place internationally. Among those nations seeking to boost its defenses, and dramatically so, is Japan. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Japan's ruling party uh, confirmed their plan on Wednesday to double their defense spending. So it'll be going from about 1% of gross domestic product to 2%. In absolute terms, that means going from spending around $50 billion worth per year to spending about $100 billion. So that would uh, move Japan up the list from being the world's ninth largest military spender to being either the third or fourth largest, depending on what some other countries do in the months ahead. But uh, in either case, you're talking about just a stunning increase in military spending, which means a far more capable and lethal Japanese military force. And at the same time, as the Liberal Democratic Party is working toward the spending increase, they're also asking Japan's defense ministry to give the country's armed forces what are called preemptive strike capabilities against possible aggressors. So this would be just a big departure from the pacifist constitution that Japan has had since shortly after World War II. That constitution very clearly banned anything except for strictly defensive actions for Japan's military. But now the Japanese want to be able to make preemptive strikes. Basically, they they want to be able to hit other countries before other countries can hit them. So Japan is pushing toward not just far more funding for its armed forces, but also far more latitude in terms of its legal abilities. So as this discussion is taking place in Japan uh, and the, the prod to increased spending uh, is, is there, what is driving that? Yeah, that's an important part of this. In, uh, in recent years, Japan had already been growing deeply concerned about China's rise and its increasing aggression. Also, North Korea's increasing provocations with all those missile tests. Some of those flew right over Japanese airspace. Um, and Japan had already been boosting its military spending as a result of those trends. And then Japan had also been very concerned about just wondering how reliable the U.S. really is as a security guarantor. All kinds of questions have been coming up about America's reliability, especially when you look at what happened with Afghanistan and things like that. So because of those factors, the Japanese had already been moving more toward military independence and strength. But now added to all of those, you have a major invasion by a nuclear power, Russia, 
into Ukraine, which is a nation that is uh, a partner to Japan. And Japan's defense minister spoke about this on Wednesday. He said, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is ongoing. In a situation that can be called the biggest crisis for the international community, we must drastically strengthen Japan's defense capabilities. So, you know, the Japanese are really taking note of this barbaric war. There are even new tensions arising between Russia and Japan over uh, some sanctions that Japan levied on the Russians due to the war, and also fresh tensions over the Kuril Islands. Those were Japanese up until the end of World War II when the Russians seized them. And you can also be sure that the Japanese, of all people, were listening carefully when Vladimir Putin threatened this week to use nuclear weapons mm -hmm. against any nation who helps Ukraine. You know, Japan, of course, is the only nation that has suffered atomic bomb attacks, so they take those kinds of uh, threats very seriously. And, and all of that is working just to push Japan away from the at least superficial pacifism that has governed it for about 75 years and toward military normalization. So you're talking about these tensions rising between uh, Russia and Japan and these other Asian nations, uh, how do you view this in light of Bible prophecy? Yes, well, that's a, it, it's, it's a pretty frightening picture when you look at it in terms of prophecy. The, the prophecies talk a lot about, um, in the end time, a group of Asian countries called the Kings of the East that will come together. That's in Revelation 16, 12. And then Ezekiel 38 tells us that Russia will be the lead nation in that block of Asian groups. But verse 6 of that chapter gives some names that indicate modern Japan. So that shows that Japan will be a part of that in-time Asian military force. So when we when we keep these scriptures in mind, I think it really shows us why it's just so, so uh, alarming today to see Japan rapidly abandoning pacifism and doubling its military budget. Well, we do have a, uh, a trend article on thetrumpet.com about this, why the trumpet watches Japan's march toward militarism. We'll link to in the show notes. You uh, definitely can read that to get prophetic context for this story. Thank you, Jeremiah. Palestinians continue to riot in Jerusalem, particularly around the Temple Mount. There's evidence that this violence is being fomented by Iran. To learn about this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yes, we're always watching for Iran's influence on the Temple Mount. This is something that Mr. Gerald Flory has said is going to increase as it backs a Palestinian and push to take over half of Jerusalem, to really watch as Iran uh, increases its support for terrorist entities that would stir up trouble on the Temple Mount, knowing that any type of fight with Israel um, over the Temple Mount is going to have a tremendous ability to mobilize a lot of um, the Muslim world behind Iran in a fight against Israel. And so we had an article that appeared this week in the Jerusalem Post. It was entitled, This is Iran's Hidden Hand in the Riots on the Temple Mount, really calling out Iran as being part of the, uh, as being the, the instigator for this violence. Of course, it's hard to track Iran's leader uh, talking to Hamas to say, go definitely to the Temple Mount and cause the riots. However, we did have a phone call that was recorded between uh, the Secretary General of the PIJ, which is uh, an Iranian, the second biggest terrorist organization in Gaza, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, a phone call between the Secretary General of that and Ali Akbar Veliati, who's a senior policy advisor to Ayatollah Khamenei. 
And in this conversation, apparently, he urged the PIJ to foil the US and Israeli plots against the oppressed people of Palestine, directly leading to those, those rocket attacks that we talked about last week uh, on side in, into Israel. And then just over the past few nights, there's just been a, a huge increase in Hamas, uh, the green flags of Hamas being waved every night and every morning after after the sun goes down on, on the Temple Mount. And you can hear the chants. I mean, I was down at the uh, just below the Temple Mount today at the city of David this afternoon. It's very hard to get a park. Traffic was blocked. Police were everywhere. And, you know, you could hear the rumble of the the people on the other side of the wall. And if you go there at the right times, it was in the middle of the day, so I didn't hear the chanting. But right, every single morning, there's a riot just as the sun comes up on the Temple Mount. And every single evening, it starts again. And the police run in there again, try and stop it. And then they try and allow the, the Palestinians back in there because they're a mass. It's the last day of Ramadan. Um, and so to see the Jerusalem Post come out and say, you know, we can attribute this to the Iranians to try, uh, as they would see it, to try and grab hold of the Palestinian cause in support of the Muslim fight to, to uh lay hold of control of his third holiest site i think is important and it deserves our, our attention that iran is still there trying to motivate this there was also it's also quds day in iran this is the day every year jerusalem day um not a celebration of jerusalem but you know when they start burning israeli the israeli flags american flags talk about how the palestinian people need the support of the whole muslim world how this is one of the goals and the desires of the islamic republic to take jerusalem back starting with the temple mount that's what they're chanting today and in jerusalem you have iranian proxies on the temple mount basically chanting the same thing well, you mentioned that uh, we we are uh, very attentive to Iranian influence in this uh, real estate here. Explain why that's important prophetically. Uh, the Bible talks about in, in the book of Zechariah how um, there is going to be a takeover of half of Jerusalem. Half Jerusalem is going to fall out of his out of Israeli hands or Jewish hands from the tribe of Judah, and Mr. Flurry has said. Uh, going back about 20 years now that to expect that the Palestinians would would really push for this. But this is what he said back in 2005. He said, these verses prophesied that the Palestinians are going to take over Jerusalem, half of Jerusalem very soon. I don't believe that the Palestinians by themselves could do that, but they could if the king of the south, which is Iran labeled uh, in this prophecy in Daniel 1140, supported and helped them. We need to watch. Iran wants to take over that city. Such a conquest would galvanize the whole Islamic world to get behind the king of the south and a goal Iran has been working towards all along. So there's a couple of prophecies there. We, we talk about Iran leading this terrorist entity, the king of the south, that is associated and allied with other nations in the Middle East, Islamic nations. And what brings them all together? What some of those nations as in this alliance are not Shiites. They don't belong to the same um, sect of Islam that Iran does. So why are they coming together? Well, it's because Iran has successfully used the fight for the Temple Mount and the Palestinian cause and control over the Temple Mount to galvanize, as Mr. Flurry says, much of the Muslim world on its side. And so this Iran's support for these Palestinian groups as they do this is a critical factor that's going to lead to half of Jerusalem falling. And this, of course, is just one step uh, in a couple of steps leading to the Great Tribulation and then and then the second coming of Christ. So it's really critical uh, to watch this signpost. The precious jewel of Iran's plan is the article that uh, 
we will link to in the show notes. If you want more information about this, we'll also link to our booklet by our editor-in-chief, The King of the South, uh, showing Iran's place in biblical prophecy. Thank you very much for that, Brent. There was actually an election in France this past week. Amazing. This is so far down in our program today. It shows how much important news is going on. And Macron Macron won. So it doesn't mark a huge political change in France, but there's a lot to take away from this election result. To tell us about it, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, we had the second round of France's elections. The way the presidential elections work there is that if nobody wins more than 50% in the first round, then the top two candidates go head-to-head for a second round. In this case, those top two candidates were the incumbent, Emmanuel Macron, and the leader of the party formerly known as the National Front, uh, Marine Le Pen. And this was a... uh, you know, th- these elections with when you have a national front candidate are always very interesting to watch. Traditionally, there is something called the cordon sanitaire in uh, French elections where no matter what your affiliation is, everybody agrees to vote against the national front in the uh, in in the runoff elections to keep them out of power because they are viewed as being so extreme. They're a party generally described as far right. I think far left would be a better characterization. Uh, there's some of their policies are, are, are pretty communist. Someone described them as nationalist socialist, which uh, uh, if you kind of ignore some of the troubling historical connections of that term is a, is a pretty accurate description of, of what they are. Um, and even with some of the troubling historical connections with that term, they tend to be about very pro-France, um, you know, standing up to Islam, standing up to other cultures coming into France. And then you pair that with a, a very socialist, even communist agenda. So with these two facing off, uh, Marine Le Pen won 40% of the vote and Mr. Macron 58.5%. So you've got a, uh, a, yeah, that's a pretty respectable result from Le Pen. In the past, you can go back and see where the, the National Front was absolutely trounced in some of these runoff elections. Some polls said that suggested this might be much, much closer, uh, but still a very large amount of support for what would traditionally be quite an extreme party. So what are people in France taking away from this? What lessons uh, are they learning from the fact that uh, Le Pen did so well? And what is Macron saying as he looks forward to uh, uh, his second term? I think it's the same kind of politics are broken takeaway that we're seeing in a lot of other places. Uh, There's a term limit in France. So a lot of people are looking at what has happened and saying, well, really, the only person who could beat Le Pen was Emmanuel Macron. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not going to be able to run in in five years' time. What happens then? So you've got a you've got a situation where and, and after the first round, we talked about how the kind of the French equivalent of the Republicans and the Democrats barely managed you know didn't manage to get ten percent of the vote each. Uh, so you've got a really strong desire for something different from politics as normal. And the, the guy that did win, Emmanuel Macron, uh, he's still got, there's a lot of kind of strongman politics there with him. And you know, there's alarming ties with Macron, with Le Pen. There's alarming ties for Macron as well. You've got to remember, he's the individual who called the French Nazi collaborator, Marshal Patin, a great soldier. He talked about NATO being brain dead. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has really zoomed in on the amount that Mr. Macron has empowered Germany. 
and uh, allowed Germany and even encouraged Germany to lead the European Union. He has an article, France is resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. So he won. Uh, to a certain extent, this kind of anti-Americanism and strongman type politics is very popular within France. He certainly has his detractors. His green agenda has alienated a lot of voters. Uh, but he's he was able to win. And you've now got he will continue these policies. He will continue supporting and empowering Germany. Mr. Flurry talked about uh, Revelation 17 in that article, and he said, well, this is a prophecy that you have 10 kings giving up their power to Germany, that these nations will be anchored to Germany. France, of all countries, is the first to admit it. So and he's also been working with the Catholic Church. So he's played a major role in moving Europe in the direction of the Holy Roman Empire, and he'll continue to do that. We have an article on the website by Josue Michel's Macron's Victory, A Warning. Uh, go check that out. We'll link to that, as well as Mr. Fleury's article, France is Resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. Thank you very much, Richard. News this week emerged that the American economy actually shrank over the first quarter of the year. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this was the other uh, big surprise this week in America, other than uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter on Monday. On, uh, on Thursday, even though economists had been predicting that we were going to see 1.1% growth in the first quarter of 2022, it actually turned out we didn't see 1.1% growth. We didn't see any growth. Uh, the economy actually shrank 1.4%. And I guess the, the, the reason for that is the, uh, the Federal Reserve has been... Uh, hiking interest rates. I'm sure anyone who's tried to look for an auto loan or a mortgage loan or uh, really any other type of loan has noticed that the interest rates have been going up and they've been doing that to try to tap down the inflation. Uh, but it, <laughs> that, that that trick comes with a cost and that these, these higher interest rates probably will keep inflation from going above 10%. But they're they're slowing down the economy, less hiring, less investment, uh, and I guess it's slowing it down quite a bit faster than they <laughs> they thought it would, which is kind of puts America in the worst of both worlds temporarily, where we have 10% inflation and a shrinking economy. As the months go by, the inflation might come down a little bit, but you get in kind of what they call <laughs> they call the stagflation. It's the it's it's basically the worst economic cycle you can be in, where you have high inflation, but economic stagnation at the same time. Usually, you try to pick one of the two. You're either inflation's growing and your economy's growing, or your inflation's low but your economy's a little maybe a little stagnant. But you get the stagflation. You uh, you definitely get the a big economic curse on America. The one silver lining uh, is it may help Republicans <laughs> in the midterms. It's uh. The, uh, it reminds me of like the old Ronald Reagan quote. It, it gets really technical. It's like if you're in a negative growth for two quarters, you're in a recession, and negative growth for four quarters in a depression. But, but Ronald Reagan made it very simple. He's like, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. And a recovery is when Mr. Jimmy Carter loses his job. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think many Americans are... Are, are hoping that maybe Mr. Biden will lose his job before too long, and uh, and we can have a bit of a, a bit of an economic recovery. But in the uh, but in the meantime, it's definitely people need to get ready for uh, high unemployment, low economic growth, and and high inflation all at the same time. 
Well, we, we do know that Donald Trump is coming back. We also know, though, that uh, prophecy says that America's economic situation is going to lead to its downfall, or it's certainly going to... Uh, to, to blow up in much more dramatic fashion than it has to this point. We actually have an article, a chapter in our He Was Right book, our financial 9-11 was prophesied that shows that uh, this is not a temporary problem, that some of the damage that's being done to America's economy is permanent, and we need to uh, brace ourselves for that. We thank you for that, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts to letters at the trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of John Adams. Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world